0: I remember it was amazing the way they would dress, the whole lighting of the show, and it was the first time I'd been to a live event of that sort, and obviously it made an impact because I never really stopped after that.
1: I'm Nick Harcourt and welcome to another episode of The Sound of Success, the podcast where we talk with movers, shakers and just plain cool people about music. Joining us today on The Sound of Success is David Hershkovitz, the co-founding editor and former editor-in-chief of Paper Magazine, which he started back in 1984 with partner Kim Hastriter. The seminal New York City based arts and culture magazine captured and continues to wield the lightning in a bottle that comes when lowbrow and highbrow pop culture, counterculture and queer culture are all put in a blender and whipped into a frothy mix of all things cool over the years papers featured cover stars from John Waters and Naomi Campbell to De La Soul and the Beastie Boys but papers best known cover probably happened in more recent years with its instantly iconic 2014 Break the Internet issue. How could you forget it? It starred Kim Kardashian on the cover, photographed by Jean-Paul Good, and Papermag.com got about 40 million unique visitors in the days following or just about 1% of all web traffic in the US. A couple of years ago, Hershkowitz and Hastrider sold their stakes in Paper Magazine, which continues to publish digitally. These days, David, a longtime advocate for cannabis reform, has a podcast about weed called Light Culture, in which he interviews rappers, writers, artists, fashion designers, models, advocates, and activists, and entrepreneurs who respect the other. David, welcome.
0: Well, thank you, nice introduction as well.
1: Good, good, good. I hope we got a, a lot of it in there. I know you've been spending some of your time in upstate New York.
0: I live in Manhattan, but we have a place upstate in Phoenicia.
1: Oh, is, Phoenicia. Uh, I know it very well. Oh, do you? Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, I got my start in radio in Woodstock. Oh, no kidding. WDST? Yeah, I was there from 1988 through 1998. That's where it all started for me. And That's I lived uh, I lived in Boyceville. Oh, um, my kids recently lived in West Shokan, so I, I know the area very well. Yeah, it sounds like it's... Not too bad a place to spend part of the pandemic, I'm sure.
0: No, it was heaven here compared to
1: what was going and on how,
0: everywhere else. Yeah.
1: How has that been, being able to pull out of the city and just sort of get into the, the countryside a little bit?
0: I'm so fortunate to be able to do that. I've had my family with me, my children, my wife, my dog.
1: So, you know, I don't know how I could have done it otherwise. Talk a little bit about the beginning of Paper Magazine. How did you get started? What was your background in journalism?
0: Prior to starting Paper Magazine, I worked on a weekly in New York. It was called Soho News, which was an alternative to the Village Voice, alternative to the alternative. And our distinction was that we were more coming out of the punk culture that was kind of taking over the city at that time. And the voice was still very much, you know, hippie, host hippie aesthetic. They didn't do fashion. We did fashion in the Soho News. And that's where I got my start in New York. And prior to that, I lived in New Orleans, where I taught at the University of New Orleans and was an editor at a, a local weekly there called the Vue Courier. And shout Easy. out to New Orleans, by the way, right now, given the situation there.
1: Oh, absolutely, yeah. Music was always at the center of paper, and the publication was unique in its coverage of the breakdowns, rap, and graffiti scenes coming out of the Bronx in the early 80s. How did you get turned on to that world, and how did you make sure it was reflected in paper's pages?
0: Well, I was very fortunate. After the Soho News folded, around 82, I was friends with some British French journalists at the time, French journalists from a magazine called Actuelle, And they were very interested in the whole hip hop scene. And one of the editor's apartments became kind of the center for a whole bunch of the legends of graffiti and hip hop today, Africa, Bambada, Grandmaster DST, Futura, Dondi, Ramelzi. all of of those heroes of that era were hanging out there and they were organizing a tour to to Europe. It's called the New York City Rap Tour. And I finagled my way onto that tour I mm-hmm. wrote a cover story for the Daily News Sunday magazine, which existed at that time. Mm-hmm. And I became friends with all those guys. And of course, I was a, loved everything they did creatively, the music, the dance. So we had the Steady crew with us as well. We had the rappers. We had just the legends. And, and I became friends with them. And then when we started Paper, incorporated everything they were doing as much as possible, like Futura covered video games for us because I knew he was into that. Africa bambata did a top 10 list for us. You know, Mel Z was a model for a couple of photo shoots, things like that. So it was just something I fell in love with. I'd always been loved music. I love black music, R&B. And so it just fit in exactly with what I was into.
1: Now, paper was always associated with nightlife in New York City and documented, the rise of the drag world as well and the arrival of ruPaul and later house music raves uh, the rock revival we talked a little bit about hip hop how have you seen nightlife change over recent years in the city and i guess that's a two part question maybe you could talk about how it was up until march of 2020 <laughs> yeah <laughs> right well a lot has changed
0: obviously I have a long history so i have a big perspective I have been around with the sort of the beginning of the modern nightlife era in New York around 1980 when the Mud Club started. It was post CBGBs and it was a dance club, which CBGBs was a lot of things, but one thing it wasn't, was really like a dance club. And in Mud Club, they played all kinds of different music. They were just very open to everything from the B-52s, uh, which I think was one of the first bands I saw there, to you know John Lurie, the Lounge Lizards, and Jean-Michel Basquiat's band, So it was all kinds of music. Everything was open. And that introduced me to this whole world of nightlife where, you know, for me, that became four or five nights a week going from one place to the other. It was all very New York downtown, very small scene in a way. Hadn't been really discovered until much later in the 90s when things started to blow up and New York came back economically rebuilding itself after those terrible years of the 70s and and even the 80s we entered this huge sustained period of economic growth and just things blew up and suddenly you had all these mega clubs palladium limelight and everything associated with that so we i remember at paper at one time we had a guide to the parties and club nights and each night of the week, there was like 10 or 15 different parties going on. So that's, it was, became a really big thing in the 90s. And then after 9-11, things really changed, I feel. And and the whole, a lot of the energy moved to Brooklyn where that whole scene blew up and it's still going very, very strong today. But as far as Manhattan goes, it's a center of sort of creative nightlife. That's for now it's over. It may, may come back now. We'll see.
1: Yeah. You know, you talk about the limelight and I spent a couple of um, nights there that I vaguely <laughs> remember. <laughs> and <laughs> you never that. left. I mean, I was like 24. Yeah. <laughs> Love that place. I, I guess we have to see what, what happens as we sort of move into uncharted territory right now. Clearly. Promoters and artists and and venues, in particular, were hoping that things would uh, begin to move back to normal. But again, everything seems to be on hold. But look, you you spend a lot of time in, in in Manhattan. Manhattan has to come back in some way, shape, or form. It just has to. The energy of the city is just too great not to. Don't you think?
0: Yeah, definitely. There's the critical mass of the city of so many people, even now squeezed into these streets and it just creates a lot of opportunity for nightlife it's not going to go away it's very hard to duplicate that kind of ecosystem in any other location because everything is so spread out and in new york you can go to numerous places in one night and that's really one of the fun things about it you don't have to drive and it's just very accessible at the same time we also have a huge creative community of musicians djs During the COVID lockdown, Tompkins Square Park, where I live, was just a hotbed of music. And all of these like, really good musicians who typically play in the clubs who had no place to work Mm. were playing in the park. And it was just, you know, you could walk around and see four or five different groups playing different music, really good stuff.
1: You you mentioned that things moved to to Brooklyn in the zeros. Do you see any other places, any other boroughs that are about to develop? I know we've been hearing about Jackson Heights and Queens for a yeah. little bit of a while.
0: Yeah, there is some activity there, especially in the like sort of the reggae dub scene. There's some still some parties going on there that sound really cool that I would love to go to. I haven't had a chance, uh, you know. Given the big ethnic makeup of Queens, and I think the the, gen, the generally Movement towards a global sound that we're hearing in a lot of uh, contemporary music today opens the door to see what's going on there too. You have your your Indian, your Southeast Asians, you have your Caribbean, you, you have Chinese, and all kind of ethnic groups. I expect them to be contributing.
1: I got one more question before we jump into the music questions, and that's uh, light culture and your interest in marijuana reform and cannabis uh, legalization. Do you think America is ready to fully embrace this idea of loosening restrictions? I mean, clearly, we've seen it in some of the more uh, progressive states. Where do you think we're at? And what do you think needs to happen for it to not just be on the West Coast or the East Coast or cool places like Colorado?
0: Well, New York is still waiting. So even though they've loosened the grip here a little bit and today you can legally or quasi legally but no one's really gonna bother you if you smoke a joint in the street mm. in New York. So that's a big deal in a way. And I'm very excited in some respects because of the alternative underground cannabis culture that's been a part of New York for you know many years since the 90s at least it has a chance now to come up and express itself. And it's a great counterpoint to the corporate cannabis culture that's more prevalent in the business side of things. So New York has this rich, underground, creative cannabis world that I expect will make a huge contribution. So, you know, to your question, what is going to happen? I think this is just going to be a slow rollout. And once New York gets its act together, it's going to be a lot easier. And and it also becomes an economic issue, obviously, people realize that there's money to be made there's the whole mm. social justice aspect of it which is super important now to kind of pay back the people who were unjustly jailed for possession of cannabis right. yeah so that's a big issue in the community that everybody is really aware of New York is making very special rules in order to make that become a reality by requiring people who have been unjustly prosecuted to be involved in the different dispensaries. So I don't know, I'm, I'm optimistic either way. I think it's here, <laughs> You know, and psychedelics are coming as well, and because of all of the health and wellness and aspects to it with regard to PTSD, and, and it's just a huge uh, amount of learning there and possibility that's been snuffed for so long that it's, it's really important. That's why I believe in it so much. It's not just like yeah, we like to get high and listen to music. That's really one of been very important part of my life.
1: <laughs> you know, that's what everybody's been thinking for many, many years, obviously, but we've now become aware of uh, the benefits of uh, the various chemicals that are in these drugs. So you mentioned psychedelics. I think that's Oregon just legalized that. And I know that New Jersey just made things a lot easier around marijuana. And I guess it's really just a, a matter of knocking down the States one at a time, huh?
0: Right. But it's really up to the government at this point, the federal government, because the states, as they have been doing, are slowly, you know, becoming coming around. But until the federal government makes the banking side of the business legal, it's going to be very difficult for it to become like a national thing. And it creates a lot of unnecessary problems. And Senator Schumer has presented a bill addressing that and it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon but at least it's on the table
1: if you're just joining us and finding yourself in the middle of uh, this week's edition of the sound of success our guest is david Hershkovitz, uh, the co-founding editor and former editor-in-chief of paper magazine and now we're going to turn to my uh, questionnaire here we go what david is your first musical memory
0: Oh, my first musical memory. So I'm an immigrant, so I came to this country when I was five. I didn't really speak English. So somewhere along there, between five and 10 years old, my cousin gave me a bunch of 78s. And I remember the teen queens, uh, for example, the sort of doo-wop era of R and B music. So that's kind of opened the door for me to that. I guess you thought it would help me learn English too. So not that's, sure. a, that's,
1: that's not a bad idea. We might need to explain 78s to some of our younger, right? some, some of our younger listeners.
0: Totally. I mean, before there were LPs, there were 33s and then there were seven RPMs. And so it was just a big LP. It was the size of, of a regular LP of, that you would have today, but it just spun around faster
1: Very, very fast, and and you
0: had a single, and that's all you got on one side.
1: I I remember my dad had a bunch of those things kicking around, and uh, you had to be really careful with them because they were made out of Bakelite or something. (laughs) Yeah, you dropped them, that was was the end of that. Yeah, what was the first music you bought with your own money? So I'm a little embarrassed by this, but
0: I'll have to tell you anyway. That's okay. (laughs) The Purple People Eater by Sheb Woolley. Oh wow. It was a one-eyed one horn flying purple people. You know? <laughs> he sings a <laughs> do lot do you remember that? Oh, oh, it yeah. was a it was a novelty record, and I don't know why. It, it's just caught my fancy and I just loved it. And how old do you think you were? Young teens, early right. teens, probably. Right. And the second one was Peter Paul and Mary. I've got a hammer. Nice. Uh, <laughs> also, just uh, you know, to remind your younger listeners as well. In those days, we just couldn't access music that easily. So when you had a record, it was a big deal and you would listen to it over and over and over again. That's how
1: I grew up. Let's talk about concerts. What was the first concert gig you went to without your parents or uh, any adult supervision?
0: So we didn't really go to concerts in my world in those days very much. certainly not before going to college, but I do remember going with a friend, uh, driving to Long Island from Brooklyn, which was a big deal back then, to, uh, to a club slash bar to see Martha and the Vandellas. Wow.
1: <laughs> Heat wave. What do you remember about that?
0: I remember it was amazing the way they would dress, the whole lighting of the show. and It was the first time I'd been to a live event of that sort. And it obviously it made an impact because I had never really stopped
1: after that. What do you listen to when you want to dance, David?
0: So when I want to dance, it's funny because I don't really, what I do is listen to music and then when something comes on that makes me want to dance, I get up and start dancing. So I have a, a you know, kind of a back-ass approach to all of that. I don't really think, I I think if I had to decide what I was going to do to listen to the dance, I really wouldn't know. I I could throw on like a Stevie Wonder. I could throw on... um, any of those old hip-hop songs that I love. It's usually I'm listening to music. I'd be listening, you know, to your show when it was on and hear that song and then just jump up and dance. That's kind of, for me, it's more inspirational
1: than intentional. What about if you're feeling a little sad, a little melancholy? What do you put on that?
0: Oh, gee, I don't know, because it varies. Sometimes I'll put something to cheer me up, you know, some upbeat rave suits tune or something, or I could just go way down with Billie Holiday and just sort of get down even further.
1: (laughs) As we've been doing as we've been doing the show now, I think this is I think you are our 18th guest on on the program. And we we started adding a couple of questions uh, from the original uh, questionnaire. And the one that seems to be a favorite of at least some of our recent guests is videos, music videos. Do Mm -hmm. you have a favorite music video and why?
0: Well, it's not a great song, but I just think it's so much fun. You've got to fight for your right to party with the, with the Beastie Boys. A friend of mine who's passed away this year, who is a photographer, Ricky Powell, he makes an appearance in that, And but it had a lot of great elements to it. And I still have a soft spot for the song, even though I know the Beasties hate it and Ricky Powell hated it.
1: You know, obviously you haven't been able to go out and see live music for a while, and- like most of us, do you have a recent musical discovery that you'd like to share with our listeners? How do you find new music yourself these days?
0: Well, you know, I'm a big fan of radio. I, I feel like there's that's a great way to discover music. That's how I used to discover music when radio was like that, more popular school, radio. Right? Yeah. yeah, really. So there's a couple of shows. I like Jeremy Sowell on, on, on your old station. Yeah. He, he mixes it up. KEXP, I like uh, Kid Hops has Seattle. a yeah he has a great show of reggae mixes up like old and new reggae and turn there and then on a whole other level of a different kind of music is WNYC uh, in New York has a show called uh, New Sounds which is more of the kind of experimental instrumental for the most part. Kind of the children of Philip Glass and Steve Reich and people like that who are nice, yeah. sort of mixing ambient with beats and more like, you know, ish things. So those are kind of my three, because I know when I listen to those shows, I'm going to hear music that I hadn't heard before. And I typically will write it down and then go to Spotify and see if I want to hear more. Right. And that's really fun. I love Flying Lotus, <laughs> things of that nature. Got it.
1: Uh, Okay. Shameless plug here. I do a a new music show here in LA on 88.5. 9 o'clock on Monday nights. Check it out at 885FM.org oh, yeah. if you don't mind. Five. I'm going to uh, write it
0: down right now. Yeah, right
1: please. First. And the other thing is we have a playlist for Spark as well, the, the Nick Harcourt New Music, New Artist Playlist. So oh. when you are over at Spotify, please uh, check it out. And I'm obviously not just talking to you. I'm talking to anybody who's listening to us uh, right now. And those shows, uh, they're called the 9 o'clock news. They're archived at 885FM.org. But uh, let's see. Do you have a band or an artist that you love? but feel they never got the, the big break or the attention they deserved?
0: You know, I've been thinking about that and I, every time I'm thinking about someone like thinking like Alan Toussaint and then I would like, well, did he get the attention he deserved? I mean, uh, I, I see he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because I went to look at his Wikipedia sure, page.
1: But, but probably not a mainstream artist.
0: Yeah, so he's somebody I've, uh, you know, because I lived in New Orleans, as I mentioned, I got totally immersed in the New Orleans scene and this is in the 70s when Alan Toussaint and the meters and all of the greats were still alive, Ernie Cato, Lee Dorsey, Fats Domino, Clarence Gate, Mouth Brown, the legends of that area, that's that regional music that were big hits at one time, but then had faded. But we're all performing locally, but whether it was a high school prom or just at a bar like Lee Dorsey's Yaya ya Club, I remember. It's, uh, the Clash came down one time to see him perform and later took him on wow. the road with them uh, to New York when they came. You know, the, just the New York, New Orleans was really important to me yeah, musically. And I was just totally immersed in that. And, and Alan Toussaint, obviously I started looking into it and everywhere I looked, he was there. No matter who, Dr. John, the Meters, Professor Longhair, Fats Domino, you know, he. Alan Toussaint was all over. And then recently, just before he passed away, not that recent, maybe five years ago at this point, I was in New Orleans for a New Orleans film festival, and he performed live in a park there. And I got to see him with his whole band, which was one of the best concerts I've ever seen.
1: Fabulous. Do you have a band or an artist that you would describe as a guilty pleasure, something that you and, don't, don't usually tell people?
0: Yeah, this is how you really get to know me, the Carpenters. Tell us why. I just love the voices. I love the tunes. Karen Carpenter's, every time I hear her sing, I melt.
1: Amazing voice, yeah.
0: And the songs were just so great. I know they were huge stars, but I don't know if anybody thinks about them today, but it's definitely a guilty pleasure.
1: No, probably to be quite frank with you, uh, it's been a while, obviously, since Karen Carpenter passed. And I I know there's been a couple of tribute albums over the years. And if you can ever get a hold of one of those ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, you really do get to see how good those songs are when they're reinterpreted by other people. But that's a good one. The Carpenters. I'm I'm impressed. Thank you, (laughs) man. We're just about done. I have one question I always like to ask at the end of these conversations, which is how are you feeling right now?
0: Well, I'm feeling really good because I'm here talking with you and, you know, somebody who I've looked up to all these years from my musical education. Uh, So that's really good. And uh, just getting back into the fall swing of things in New York, I'm expecting to be very busy and hopefully things will be lightened up a little bit so people could still relax out there. But I'm optimistic.
1: Hey, listen, man, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. I'm really grateful that you took a little bit of time to talk to us about uh, some of your musical background uh, on The Sound of Success. David Hershkovitz. thank you, mate. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. The Sound of Success is produced by Elizabeth Thompson with myself, Nick Harcourt for Spark Network. Our theme music is by Key to Claim. For more episodes, find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and at sparknetwork.com.